From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 192 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not too bad. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. There was been a lot of Disneyland news out today that he, that I, you've been covering on the Walt Disney World show, which is exciting. There's a couple of things I'll bring up in our witty banter at the end of the show. But I appreciated that Denny, who was hosting the show today, gave us a big shout out yeah. on the show about how we uh, covered the history of the Disneyland and Magic Kingdom haunted mansions. Yeah, no, it was uh, very exciting because... Because as you've already hinted at, where we'll talk a little bit about it. But uh, my embarrassing part is we were talking just really briefly about if if Walt Disney World or Disneyland is better, and I was like, "Oh yeah, of course, Walt Disney World. The ride is better." And then, like ten minutes later, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, "I'm like." I'm not confident that that's what I've said when we've talked about Haunted Mansion in the past anymore I don't now. think it was. But I, I I think they both have elements that are that make each of them superior to each other, which is really weird because there there are some elements of our Haunted Mansion at Disneyland that I think make it superior to the Magic Kingdoms, but then the Magic Kingdom has some elements that I think makes it superior to Disneyland's. So I think they both are incredible attractions that have enough differences that make them unique to where they're different experiences. That is very, very true. You hit the nail on the head there, and Hopefully now at least I can get ahead of the the bad press of Craig can't even keep his story straight. He <laughs> saying one thing today and then the next the wrong thing the next day. But uh, they're both both great attractions and yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun when we get to have our different shows collide because normally they they don't get to very much unless it's just a quick mention and housekeeping and such. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's always. Denny's a great yeah. lady. You should listen to her. She is. <laughs> oh yeah, she is. Well, so some someday we'll have to find a reason to have her on the show. Trivia. She what? wasn't around when we were doing <gasps> trivia. Trivia. That's oh, what a good idea. Okay, we'll have to talk about that more and see if that's something that she would be interested in doing. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, I'm sure she would. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll have to uh, put our heads together and figure out when we can uh, make that happen. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, in our ongoing series on the history of Walt Disney Animation, we've talked about the Alice comedies, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Mickey Mouse, the Silly Symphonies, Donald Duck. And in episodes 189 and 190, we began our exploration of Walt Disney's first full-length animated feature and first 
in the line of Disney princesses, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And in episode 190, we talked about the development and creation of the character of Snow White. And if Snow White represented one kind of challenge for the animators, the other title characters, the Seven Dwarfs, represented a whole different challenge. The idea of casting the dwarfs as seven different personality types identified by their names did not develop over the course of the production of the film. This was a part of Walt's first concepts for the film. In previous episodes, we talked about how the names and personalities of the dwarfs were determined. This concept stemmed from the nature of character animation prevalent at the studio during this time and was central to Walt's reasons for producing Snow White. Character animation was at the heart of the success of the Walt Disney Studio and was one of Walt's greatest breakthroughs. If the characters in Disney cartoons were suddenly reaching out and endearing themselves to the audience as no other animated characters had ever done, it was because they projected convincing, appealing personalities. And this was achieved through well-conceived stories, the design of the characters, and most importantly, the way the characters moved. An excellent example of this is 1933's The Three Little Pigs. And Craig, have you seen other studios' um, animation during from this era to compare and contrast? I I feel like I have. I mean, I I've I grew up watching all really really old cartoons as much as possible wherever I could find them. I mean, back then it's just on TV more often. I I don't know why but i've even watched some of the loops and such on youtube you know you can find like uh lots of lots of people have uploaded really terrible quality version copies of it'll be like cartoons of the 1930s and and it just will be like an hour of cartoons back to back to back so i i feel like i'm no expert but it's definitely it's definitely something i've studied yeah yeah i mean growing up when you know, when I was a boy, that you know, local television stations were were still trying to fill time for children's programming because you know they weren't they weren't making programming specifically for children, so they were pulling out all these old cartoons and and running them on you know local kitty shows like you know we had Captain Satellite and Mayor Art and you know where I was growing up and things like that and uh, and they would run cartoons. And th- so they would run the Fleischer cartoons from the Fleischer studios and they would run the really old, old Popeye and an uh, out of the inkwell series and all of those. So I really got exposed to Walt's competition at, f- from this era. I mean, everyone in my generation did, I think, and who watched television and, uh, and you could tell the difference really between the Walt Disney Studio cartoons and the uh, and and uh, everyone else in, in in the in the way the cartoons were animated in their stories. I found the Fleischer cartoons creepy, and that yeah. was due to rotoscoping, which we're going to get into a little more about why. And and even though I didn't know what rotoscoping was, I 
didn't care for the characters and how they moved and their facial expressions. And we're going to find out, neither did the Walt Disney animators. And um, so, yeah, so definitely, you know, this is why the Walt Disney Studio was so successful in this era. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally get that. And, you know, I... It's I I still do love watching really a, a lot of the era of Popeye and uh, even even the early stuff I I like that I think Betty Boop is still uh, pretty pretty entertaining overall mm-hmm. but Disney definitely above the rest yeah they played Betty Boop too still on TV when I was growing up yep they they did it for me yeah. too and yeah. you know the the thing though is though. Like I know that Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies, those were those were around, but uh, we really I feel like I only watched the classic age of of those cartoons as much. They didn't play a lot of the ones that are luckily now on HBO Max. I know mm-hmm. there's not all of them, but uh, it was really it, that's how I was able to now finally get exposed to some of those earlier ones is because of that. Not all just the ones from the the 1950s when they were really. When they're really the firing funny on looking all cylinders, the funny looking Bugs Bunny, yeah, <laughs> one and Porky Pigs, yeah, where Porky was really Porky, yeah, they were still running those on television when I was little, so yeah, I'm but. sure, I'm sure I saw an episode or two every now and then, and I was like, no, they're I, they're not, that's not Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> But this craft of character animation was a new art form, and it would reach its peak at the Walt Disney Studio in the 1930s and the early 1940s. This was difficult to master, but Fred Moore, Hamilton Lusk, Norm Ferguson, Bill Titla, Art Babbitt, and a handful of other Disney artists had a special talent for it and had become the stars of the studio. One of the early challenges in designing the seven dwarfs was to determine how much the dwarfs should resemble real dwarfs. In one of the earliest story meetings, the writers were given a directive, call them seven little men, not dwarfs. And this policy was maintained throughout production. Although the term dwarfs was inherited from the Grimm's brothers, within the film, they're referred to as seven little men. In 1936, real dwarfs, or little men, were brought to the studio and filmed in 16 millimeters to see if any of their movements could be used for the film. The artists did not want to portray any deformities, but Walt and his artists sought creative ways to suggest the characteristics of real dwarfs. What would be the proportions of their limbs? What would their, what would be their pelvic structure and how would they walk? Albert Herter's early sketches were a balance between grotesque and charm, but putting his ideas into motion without offending or distracting audiences proved to be too daunting of a challenge for Walt and his artists. In the end, they were simply seven little men. Walt gave Herter's sketches to Fred Moore with the instruction to give them more personality. Moore outlined the dwarfs on model sheets to be used by the other animators as preliminary guides for their drawing. On his original model sheet of 1935, the dwarfs remain as they were described in 1934. Doc is bespeckled, happy is fat, grumpy has a big nose, deafy cocks his hand to his ear, and jumpy is beady-eyed. 
Bashful is baby-faced, big-eared, and undersized. His high-peaked hat covers his baldness, and he wears an overlong tunic. In early 1936, the identities of the seven dwarfs were settled. Jumpy and Deffy were out, Sneezy was in, Bashful took on a different persona, and the features that had been given to him were given to Dopey. However, there was no waiting for all these fine points to be worked out. The story and cast outline were clear enough in 1935 for the studio to begin composing the music, casting for voices, and scripting the film, all of which was necessary to begin layout and animation. The casting of the dwarfs' voices was extremely flexible. Their voices and sounds were an amalgam of hundreds of bits and pieces. Jim McDonald or Hal Freeze or another studio hand frequently filled in if the voice actors were unavailable. Dopey's yell and hiccups be- um, became a popular studio pastime. McDonald, Pinto Kolvik, Dick Rickard, Clarence Nash, and others all dropped in from time to time to record these sounds. Nash, the voice of Donald Duck, is heard throughout the film as one of the whistling birds, an owl hooting at Snow White in the forest, part of group exclamations by the dwarfs, the old hag's cackle when she brews her potion. Hollywood vocal director Freeman High provided a men's ensemble to sing Dig 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 and Hi Ho. If animating Snow White was a difficult challenge for the artists, animating the prince was nearly impossible. Both Walt and his animators would come to regard the prince as the single weakest element of the film. Any shortcomings in animating Snow White's movement could be smoothed over with the cute, cuddly touches the studio had used on other characters over the years. This was not an option for the prince. Maintaining his masculinity was a touchy issue within the studio. There were also questions about what kind of character he should be. Walt assigned the prince to Fred Moore, but as the story continued to develop, the prince became less playful and demonstrative, so Walt assigned Moore to other tasks. Cuts made to the story to strengthen the film came at the expense of the prince, and the cuts were partially made to minimize the animation of the prince. Much of the animation of the prince was assigned to Grim Natwick, who specialized in human animation. He relied heavily on Mark Davis, who would later become a specialist in human animation. Some print scenes were tossed like a hot potato to artist in Ham Lusk's unit. Unexpected assistance came from Milt Call, who had been assigned to work on the Animals and Birds unit. His phenomenal drawing ability rescued some of the prince's most difficult scenes. Unlike Snow White and the Dwarfs, the prince was not brought to life by a single animator. His brief performance was due to the work of several artists, all of them straining to just simulate the mechanics of human movement. For the prince's voice, the studio tested several voices and selected Harry Stockwell, a high baritone with a modest film career. Louis Hightower, one of the pupils from the dance school run by Marjorie Belcher's father, performed the live-action reference footage for the prince. The evil queen's role 
in the story could not be minimized because it was her vindictive jealousy of Snow White that was at the center of the plot and moved the story forward. As the third major human character, she represented another daunting challenge for the animators. As we discussed in our previous episode, there were various concepts for the queen, but Walt and his artists decided to create a coldly beautiful queen. This was not an easy task. Finalizing her design was a prolonged undertaking and still being discussed as late as March 1937. At times, she was pictured as having live peacocks in the throne room, and at other times, a deadly panther. In the end, she had no pets, but her throne was given an elaborate peacock design. I think it's so easy to overlook her throne room, but it is so gorgeous, this this Art Nouveau uh, uh, style with that incredible peacock throne. I always have to pause the film just to look at those layouts and backgrounds of the the throne room scenes. I'm not even going to lie to you. It's something that I had to actually look up when I was reading the script for this episode, because it was not jumping out to me necessarily as I was, as I was reading through. And as soon as I looked it up, I, and just like taking a look at the still image of it, I was just blown away. It's the detail is there and it is, it is gorgeous artistry. Not that that's not expected because you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a beautiful movie, but it is so intricately detailed and just just a pleasure to look at. So I if I could recommend something, uh, just go on and and search on Google to find images of it or hit pause on it. If you're you're watching on your, your Disney Plus or Blu-ray DVDs, however, and really just take some time to study the images because it's just it's it's a work of art. There are a few films where I will pause and go back and rewatch scenes just to look at the artwork. Sleeping Beauty is one that I mentioned a few weeks ago, and Snow White is another, and so is Pinocchio. I think those are the three, for me, of the classic films, the three most beautiful created by the Walt Disney Studio. Yeah, and and you can just pour over them. Exactly. And it's something that I feel like isn't actually done enough, as I just admitted my guilt with that here. But it's just, it's not firsthand nature to pause to just take in the actual, the actual scenery because, you know, usually if you're hidden pause, it's because you have to get up and go refill your popcorn or, check your phone something something happened along the ways or maybe you're pausing to like to try to see is did i just see that detail is that is that a hidden secret that's in there like yeah, you'll look for all those reasons but i feel like a lot of people don't stop to just appreciate the image and and i am a huge fan of that like one of my favorite uh, people i follow on twitter is a uh, is a uh, a handle called one perfect shot that's all about those those frames from movies that are just 
they are done so perfectly and they'll do it for uh, for cartoons usually on the weekends on saturday and sunday but it's just there's not enough of, of an appreciation of these perfect moments in in cartoons especially some of the, some of the disney movies in particular that just really nail it and i mean disney still nails it to this day with with backgrounds in, in certain movies that they they make so it's not like it's out of the realm but this example that you just brought up with snow white this is this is a key example of the beautiful uh, artistry of the background Mm -hmm. now the primary responsibility for animating the queen was assigned to art babbitt who had previously developed goofy and the mouse's drunk scene in the short the country cousin and you would think what an odd choice you know, right, yeah. <laughs> to gift our Babbitt, but he had a passion for the analysis of movement and the way it reflected character. And although he struggled with the severe technical demands of creating the Queen's subtle, realistic movements, he successfully created the desired character, a Queen whose cold, hypnotic beauty was balanced by her forbidding and frightening nature. He absolutely succeeded with that. And, uh, mm-hmm. Good, good, uh, a good way to put it. Why, what he brought to bring in that character to life. And when you think of some of the other villains in Disney films, it is the beautiful ones, the ones that have the beauty that are, I think, the most frightening. And I'm thinking of the evil stepmother in Cinderella. Mm-hmm. I mean, she does have a matronly beauty, but. It, it, but, and it, and it, and, and that beauty somehow emphasizes her cruelty even more. Yep. And it's just how she holds herself. It's the, Mm -hmm. it's the regal posture and Mm -hmm. yeah, the regalness of it and the, the, the subtle, the subtle shifts in the head and eye movements. It's, it's all of that combining together. And I think that is why the, the the queen here in Snow White is is a good example of that and and Cinderella's stepmother Maleficent Maleficent I was thinking yeah, yeah. and there's but then there's there are still some characters that break out of that like Stromboli and Pinocchio a terrifying character in every sense of it but definitely not uh, not graceful and his fear doesn't come from from his movements it just comes from everything else about him the way his, his size his proportions his the the anger that's in him so it's yeah it's uh it's it's fascinating to see the the multiple different sides of villainy mm-hmm. you know the queen's alter ego the witch or old hag was an entirely different matter norm ferguson one of the studio's leading animators and the creator of pluto and the big bad wolf was assigned to bring the witch to life. She was every bit as frightening as the queen, but the rules of realistic human design and movement did not apply to the witch. Because of her grotesque appearance, she was perfect for cartoon animation. Ferguson took full advantage of the witch's exaggerated design and animated her dark deeds with glee. The voices of both the Queen and the Witch were provided by the celebrated stage and character actress Lucille Laverne. 
Bill Cottrell, who had directed the Queen and the Witch sequences, said, She was just marvelous to work with. We had been trying, oh, a dozen or two actresses, mostly from radio, to do the voice of the Queen and the Witch. And most of them came in, and they saw the drawings of the Queen and the Witch, so they all did that typical witch that they were all kind of using on the old radio shows. You know, it was a very broad, cackling thing. Lucille Laverne was a stage actress, and she came in and glanced at the storyboard, took the script and read it, and you could have recorded it and used the dialogue as she read it. She was so great. I thought she was marvelous. Apparently, too, when I, I was when I was researching and writing for this, there there was a story about when she switched from the queen to the witch for a dialogue, she would remove her false teeth. Oh, to, that's to hilarious! Cha- to to change her voice, and and also for the live action reference footage. Yeah, I, it makes sense. It actually makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense, and that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a cool little story. That's old Hollywood there for you. Yeah, yeah. And Laverne also performed some live-action reference footage for The Witch. In the Grimm Brothers' tales, when the queen wanted to learn who was the fairest one of all, she consulted a magic wall mirror. But early stage and film versions gave the queen a hand mirror, usually hanging from a cord on her belt. In Walt's film, not only does the mirror return to the wall, it becomes a full character. This was the first adaptation that gave the mirror a distinctive identity. In early manuscripts of the film, the mirror stalks the queen around the room like the Frankenstein monster. As the story evolved, the mirror became more and more restrained and eventually evolved into the otherworldly impassive oracular presence we see in the film. Walt described the character as a motionless type, almost frozen face, a voice from out of space. Walt said, make him more poetic, not have him come out with a plain statement. The mirror should be more like an oracle. When the mirror becomes ordinary in its conversation, it throws me all out. Wooly Reitherman was assigned to animate the mirror's frozen face. Casting of the mirror's dark sepulchral voice took place late in production, and various actors were considered, like John Carradine, Irving Pichel, and even John Barrymore. In the end, a stage actor with a resonant voice, Maroney Olsen, was selected. To achieve the effect of a disembodied otherworldly voice, an article in Photoplay magazine said the sound department had Olsen speak into a long, hollowed tube whilst lying on a marble slab. An illustrated article in Popular Science said Olsen inserted his head into a hood constructed from a square box-like frame with a drum head stretched taut over five of the six sides as he spoke from inside it. Whatever methods were used, they worked. Another of the Queen's minions, the Huntsman, had a very nondescript role in the original tale. Various stage and film productions built up his story and even gave him the name of Berthold. In the 1916 Paramount film, Berthold and his family were major characters, and he, along with the prince, discover the body of Snow White at the end of the story, and together they confront the witch. 
The Disney Story team considered this and other approaches when creating their version of the Huntsman. At one point in 1936, it was suggested that the Huntsman be shown as a sadistic killer who actually took pleasure over the idea of killing Snow White. In the end, all these ideas were rejected, and the Huntsman is given a minor role. He is the fourth human character, but given his stocky build and coarse features, he was less of an animation challenge. He was animated by Errol Gray, one of the assistants in the Ham Lusk unit. His voice, like many of the others, was difficult to cast. After bringing in several actors to record dialogue but found unsatisfactory, Paul Stewart Buchanan, the studio casting director and dialogue coach, was cast in the role of the Huntsman. Some animals and birds are mentioned in the Grimm Brothers' tales, but due to the difficulty of training animals, their roles in the previous stage and film versions had been significantly reduced. However, animation was perfect for a large animal populations. Animals will not talk, read an early outline. They are intelligent, clever, but will do nothing that is not plausible for animals and birds to do. The animals and birds do play an important role in the film and become Snow White's devoted companions. In 1936, Walt said, We have taken the characters from the Grimm story and haven't added any. The only thing we have built in this story are the animals who are friends of Snow White. This wasn't in the original fairy tale. Like the human characters, the animation of the animals and birds was assigned to artists who specialized in these characters. The principal animal men were Jim Algar, who would go on to direct many of Walt Disney True Life Adventure nature films, Bernard Garbutt, Milt Call, Eric Larson, and Louis Schmidt. These artists, with a core of assistants, made up a subunit of Ham Lusk's larger unit because the animals and birds so closely interacted with Snow White. Lusk supervised their work and occasionally worked with them on their scenes, but he was mostly focused on the animation of the human characters. In later years, Eric Larson would look back on the Snow White animals, particularly the deer, with disdain and say, you could hardly call them deer. They were sacks of wheat. He compared them unfavorably with the anatomically realistic deer in Bambi. However, I think more realistic deer would have been out of place in the fairy tale-like setting of Snow White. In fact, when Bernard Garbutt submitted some of his first Snow White scenes for review, Walt's response was, Don't have the deer too real, but get them graceful and cute. Seventeen cartoon shorts were released in 1936, but as the year unfolded, more and more of the experienced artists were transferred from the shorts to Snow White as the studio geared up for production. When a sequence had been storyboarded and approved for production, it was handed over to its sequence director, who, with the music director, took it to the music room. Here, the length of each scene, its dialogue, and the tempo of its background score were determined and timed into feet of film footage. This ensured that what the audience saw would be synchronized with what they heard. The story was then handed over to the layout department where the picture was staged. The layout man had to visualize the staging completely in miniature. 
The layout artists took these concepts and elaborated them into hundreds of penciled, miniaturized sets upon which the characters would act. Ken Anderson constructed a scale model of the dwarf's cottage to help him stage the action and gauge camera angles. The layout artists first broke down the storyboards into specific scenes and made rough thumbnail pencil drawings, adding substance to the story sketches. At the same time, they made rough layout drawings upon which the camera mechanics, close-ups, long shots, and pans were diagrammed in red pencil for use by the animators. These were followed by finely detailed layout designs made either to serve as precise models for the background painter or as exact outlines over which the animators would lay their paper and plot their animation across the scene. You know, we, we tend to think of animation as the animators sitting at those wonderful Kim Weber desks and just, you know, sketching scene, you know, the characters. Yeah. But I wanted to get into this so that we all had a really good understanding of just the procedure and the production and, and, and that just goes into making one of these films and that there are hundreds, if not thousands involved yeah. sometimes in the making of these early films. Oh yeah. And uh it's that's why it was also very important to eventually have a studio that had a better flow to it because of how intricate it is making making a, a full-length animated feature film and the amount of, of space needed just to do it too. Yeah, you needed a, a a space that was built specifically to help cater to to the actual artistic process of making these movies too so it's no it's no easy feat and i mean it's still not an easy feat uh to make make animated movies today i mean watch watch uh inside pixar on on disney plus and get an idea of how those people are just running around the pixar campus from place to place to place to place to to make these movies uh mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot of computers uh computer work being done now but this is just an entirely different beast and uh very very impressive due to the complexity of snow white's more natural environment filled with more characters than ever before the studio went to the considerable expense of increasing the largest size of their bond stock paper and repunched the sheets with three holes and two bars rather than the previous two holes to keep the drawings pegged to the animators boards this required equipping the layout animation background, ink and paint, and camera departments with new drawing boards. The first scenes began coming out of layout early in 1936, and the animators were ready to begin pilot animation, even if the characters remained imperfectly figured. Ham Lusk, who had been entrusted with Snow White, was the first to get to work. He was followed in March by Fred Moore, and then by Bill Teitler on The Dwarfs, then Art Babbitt on The Queen, and Norm Ferguson on The Witch. Since Adriana Casalotti had not yet been brought back to record the dialogue, Lusk brought, borrowed Betty Lawyer, soon to be Mrs. Ward Kimball, from the ink and paint department, to read from the script and have her voice recorded on wax records that she could work from. She also performed some of Snow White's movements for Lusk's test animation. 
Soon, Miss Casalotti was brought in and spent 48 days recording the dialogue and songs, and Marjorie Belcher, who walked through Snow White's movements in front of a camera. The film was then run through the studio's version of Rotoscope, which projected the film frame by frame onto a drawing table, where each frame was traced onto animation paper. The direct application of rotoscope tracings posed a problem from the beginning. Marjorie Belcher could not look the way Snow White had been envisioned. An animator might be instructed by the costume movement or take Miss Belcher's nose as a point of reference, but Snow White's eyes were lower on her face, her mouth was higher, and her hips narrower. Miss Belcher was also taller than Snow White. If the animators relied on rotoscope tracings, they complained that the animation looked stilted. So rotoscoping was only of incidental value to the animators, and it was a costly lesson. And this is why I think I don't care for a lot of the Fleischer studio animation of this time, because the animation does look stilted, yeah. and they, they relied too much on rotoscoping for even the um, facial features and movement so that it uh, of their character so it doesn't look natural yeah i mean it, it makes it easier but it's not it's not always about taking the easy way out and you know even when it is an easier way there's still a lot of method that has to go into it but i i, I agree with your your assessment of the overall look now in 1937 as the rumors of the money, talent, and time Walt had already expended on the untested project of an animated feature film leaked from the studio, the feature earned the nickname Disney's Folly, and the amount already expended was nothing compared to the money, talent, and time that Walt was prepared to spend in production in 1937. All the talk made his bankers nervous, and they pressured him to set a release date. They settled on the end of the year, and that is where we will pick up our story in our next installment on the history of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now it's time for Craig to take a look in his magic mirror at This Week in Disney History. Well, Craig, you are on your own this week. You, you had Mary Jo to bounce off of for three weeks now, but we're back to our old routine. Yeah, I'll try <laughs> to do my best here, but no promises. <clears throat> this is a tough week because uh, not a lot happened in mid-April, and uh, except a lot of people were bored. So I thought, well, that gets old really fast. Yeah, well, <laughs> so. we'll see if we can uh, change that. Let's start. Yeah. Let's start making things happen this year. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, April 18th, the Disney Channel, a pay TV network, debuted at 7 a.m. on April 18th, 1983. I remember this. What was the first program to air on the channel? Mm. I actually don't know this answer. Yeah. It's Good Morning Mickey which featured classic Disney animated shorts. And it was so exciting to see those shorts that you you just hadn't seen for, yeah. like, decades. It was great. And other programs this day included Mouser Size, Welcome to Pool, Pool Corner, a Mommy and Me theme show called You and Me, 
Oh, you and me, kid, I should say. And a game show titled Contraption. It only aired 16 hours a day, and the channel later expanded to 18 hours in April 1984. And in December 1986, the Disney Channel will commence full-time broadcasting 24 hours every day. I got Pooh Corner in the back of my mind, but that seems like a weird one to launch on. But very cool. Yeah, well, the morning was all for preschoolers, pretty much. Yep, and then it still is to this day. I haven't watched the Disney Channel in ages. I am no longer the demographic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, April 19th. Which Magic Kingdom attraction was closed for major renovations on April 19th, 2009? It is the first time this attraction is temporarily closed for improvements since it first opened in 1975. The renovations include new track, although the layout of the track will remain the same, a new enclosure for the attraction's queuing area, and a new ceiling. I, If I'm remembering correctly with this, and it would make sense with all the extra details you threw in, I believe that was Space Mountain. That is correct, Space Mountain. April 20th, Al Weiss, the president of Walt Disney World, and Mike Capellis... CEO of Compaq announced plans for Walt Disney World's newest Epcot attraction on April 20th, 2000. What attraction did they announce? Of course, with Compaq being involved, has to be the wonderful Mission Space. That's right, on the site once occupied by Horizons. And we've, you can go back into not long ago, we talked about Horizons and Mission Space. Yeah, yeah. In the the past year, six months, mm-hmm. we've we've touched on that in uh, some of our better episodes. They're all great. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Okay, April twenty first. Voice actress and writer Thelma Boardman passed away at age sixty eight in California on April twenty first, nineteen seventy eight. She performed the voice of which Disney character? Can you say the name again? Sorry, Thelma. Boardman. Hmm. I do. I don't know. She was the second voice of Minnie Mouse. Oh. She voiced Minnie for only four shorts The Little Whirlwind in 1941, The Nifty 90s in 1941, Mickey's Birthday Party in 1942, and Out of the Frying Pan into the Firing Line in 1942. Miss Boardman was originally from the studio's ink and paint department. She also supplied a few voices for Disney's Bambi and such shorts as Mother Goose Goes Hollywood and Donald's Better Self. You can go ahead and ask me that question again next year. I can promise you I'm not going to remember her name at all. Oh, no, but when you watch all these shorts now, you have to look for her name. Yeah, it's... If she's even listed, a lot of times they're not credited. Michael, I already forgot the name. I know it's Thelma, <laughs> but I don't remember the Thelma last name. Thelma Boardman. Boardman. I, it, yeah, it's just not going to stick. Cause, Something cause about remember, that. She's, because she's the girlfriend of the chairman of the board, Mickey. Yeah, no, I'm not. I can remember. <laughs> I, will, I will try. I will try. Ask me again in a month from now. <laughs> okay. All right. April 22nd. Flora Call is born to Charles and Henrietta Call in Steuben, Ohio, on April 22nd, 1868. What is their Disney connection? I uh, 
believe that that was uh, that was Walt's mom. <laughs> That's right. Flora will go on to marry Elias Disney, the son of a neighborhood family in 1888, and later give birth to five children, including a son named Walter. Yeah, I guess I could have gave lots of answers. I could have said it was Roy's Roy's mom. It was that's right. It was uh, Walt's dad's wife. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. April 23rd, at a dedication service on April 23rd, 1993, Walker Ranch, located about 15 miles south of Walt Disney World, officially became associated with the Walt Disney Company. What is the new name of this property? I don't know this. The Disney Wilderness Preserve. The Walt Disney Company and the South Florida Water Management District had come to an agreement in 1992, allowing Disney to develop an area in Central Florida closer to their theme parks if Disney would purchase and preserve Walker Ranch, 8,500 acres of wetlands. The preserve is home to two endangered species, the bald eagle and the wood stork, as well as several other threatened species. Disney will use the Central Florida area to build Celebration a new city themed after a typical small American town of the 1940s and 50s. Today, the Disney Wilderness Preserve is owned and operated by the Nature Conservancy. I had no idea at all that this was down there. I mean, we have a lot of uh, nature reserves around Florida, like like most places around the United States, but um, I just looked it up on where it's at on a map here close to close to us i'm kylie and i are gonna have to go check it out one day yeah i was thinking that i was thinking when i'm out there for a longer period of time i thought since i love animal kingdom so much this might be a place i'd like to visit yeah the looking at the nature conservancy website too and just the uh the header image they have of it it looks it looks pretty so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to get out there and and see (laughs) what it's all about that's i'm excited now (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I live right near a wetlands, and so when I, I take long walks through them. And so I thought, and love it. I mean, it's a highlight when I do that. And so I thought, this that this sounded like was I remember when this sale happened, but I didn't remember all the details. I thought, I have to check this place out. Yeah, I mean, it's just looking at it. There's a, there's a small half-mile hike. There's a two-and-a-half-mile loop. And then there's a, a three-and-a-half-mile three loop that connects to the two-and-a-half one. So you can the, – the big total combination is a six-mile hike. So you can have a, a decent decent day of hiking and working out if you head there. Hmm. So I'm, that sounds cool. Going to have to find a time to get a part-time job there, being a park ranger. <laughs> yeah. Okay, April 24th. What did Imagineering legend Marty Sklar announce in a letter to all Imagineers on April 24th, 2009? I'm assuming this was his retirement. Mm-hmm. Right, that he will say goodbye to Walt Disney Imagineering on July 17th. A Disney legend, Marty Sklar began as a Disney cast member 53 years prior at Disneyland's Public Relations Department and joined WED Enterprises in 1961. Marty Sklar will be honored with a window dedication ceremony at Disneyland on his date of his retirement. And of course, the window is in his old office in Disneyland City Hall. 
Yeah. And while he may have retired, he was still very much active. Oh, absolutely. And but then after he retired, he told all the good stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, Craig. Thank you. Well, as we talked about in the beginning of this episode, one of the many announcements that came out of Disney this week was that Disneyland's Haunted Mansion is getting some enhancements. And what's nice is some of these enhancements are tributes to the Imagineers that designed the Haunted Mansion. Mm -hmm. So there's a tribute to Exitensio, and that's the one-eyed cat that is in that is going to be i think it's in the loading area there's a statue of a one-eyed cat yes. and they say and they say that uh it, it might even gleam with a devil's eye if you look at it and that that harkens back to what one of the early concepts and we may have talked about this when we talked about the haunted mansion where instead of a ghost host there was going to be one of the hosts was going to be a cat this devil cat that was that was a reference to um, a uh, a nod to um, I think an Edgar Allan Poe story, and he would have followed guests throughout the ride, and that he and, and uh, he despised living humans and all of that, and he was sort of demonic and all that. So it's nice that there's a nod to one of Exitensio's scripts. And the raven sort of then took the place of the cat mm-hmm. throughout there. And there's a tribute to Rolly Crump. Yeah. There's a floating wicker chair in, that's been added to the seance room. Yeah, that one, I'm excited to to see how it's, uh, how it's incorporated in because uh, it just, it, it's, I, I really want to just see it with my own eyes. And and no, like, it, does this feel like it should have been here all along? Because I kind of have a feeling that it will. Yeah, yeah, because because uh, in Rolly's original concept for the séance room, uh, the uh, a chair was the centerpiece mm-hmm. for it. So, uh, so I thought that's a nice touch. And then, of course, they've brought back Mark Davis's April to December portrait. In a loading area, and I guess the, the Imagineers said the reason they removed it was because they felt the effect didn't work well. Although I thought it worked pretty well, yeah, all the times I, I saw it. I mean, I would have seen it right. They removed it in what was it, two thousand five? In, in two thousand, I think it was even earlier. Was it two thousand? I don't know. I remember it was somewhere in there, but I would have seen it. I believe, if I remember correctly, when I was. I went on that first trip to Disneyland in, in 99. It felt very familiar seeing the picture of it. Like I, I felt like I, I had seen it before, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I really buy into the, we didn't think it was a good effect before because there's plenty of bad effects that have stuck around at Disney attractions over the years that have never been changed and fixed. So yeah. um, it seems like it was just probably a decision that was made by someone at some point in time. And, and now they're able to correct it in a way, but plus it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like where they've hung it in the loading area, they could hang more portraits mm-hmm. if they wanted to as well. So that's neat. There's, um, I guess they also said that there's like a, a dollhouse has been added somewhere and they've added other things to, to enrich the story of the mansion. And one of them is a dollhouse, but the, they haven't said what else is in there. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I think they've done other things like changed out Jerry Breeze and things like that too. And then the pet cemetery got more, uh, landscaping in there. What I like is they have a bird bath with a cat peeking out of it. Yeah. yeah. To l- let you know, uh, what happened to all those birds that are <laughs> remembered there and that they planted garlic near the skunk's grave. Oh, I thought they'd done that before. And, um, but anyway, but just so they said that so that you could get the scent of it. I, I, they, they had such a wonderful horticulture tour at Disneyland and I lost my notes to it, but they talk so much about the haunted mansion and the plants that they selected for it and the, and the, what their colors and how they like their blues and purples. And, but some were like blood red as oh. you walked up areas, like some of the, um, coleus and things. And, and how they all drew you into this story and tried to add to the horror, how the trees are all drooping trees and, and all that, just to add to the story of the mansion and, and all that. And so the horticulture all told a story. So, um, so it, it was very cool. So, um, I wish they would bring that back. Yeah. So. Anyway, so I'm looking forward to that whenever I get to Disneyland. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. how exciting for <laughs> Disneyland with the reopening. I mean, just uh, so much anticipation with it reopening, but then throw throw on top of it too that uh, Haunted Mansion. We finally know what was happening with it because when it went down after Haunted Mansion Holiday, and we knew that it was going to be down for a refurb and to fix some stuff up, you know, they, then the park closed and. So it just kind of it hung in the air is a, a big question is more concerned about the park reopening rather than what was going on inside Haunted Mansion. But, uh, you know, for for changes to come with that, for uh, Snow White to now be be finally here and done in that new experience of the attraction, Avengers Campus on June 4th, uh, just Gosh, Disneyland, you had to wait a really long time, but now you're getting a lot of presents in a very short amount of time. And that's just, uh, I'm so jealous, so jealous I can't be there, but hopefully sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that'd be exciting. So. And um, I got an email about the Diz Family Reunion this week, so I thought we hadn't brought it up in a while. But yeah, the Diz Family Reunion that is put on by and benefits give kids the world it's you know september 9th the 10th and we the email really talked about um some of the things we've already talked about but it said we wanted you to be among the first to know about some of the outstanding presenters that have been added to the event including pat sajak host of wheel of fortune chef art smith award-winning actress and Voice actress Jodie Benson, the voice of Princess Ariel from Disney's animated classic The Little Mermaid, Jeff Vale, president of Walt Disney World Resort, and more. And then it said that special demonstrations will be provided by Disney artists, including Joe Kaminsky and Will Gay, along with performances by Off Kilter and American Martian. We may know them better as Mulch, Sweat, and Shears. And an exclusive private party will also be held on September 11th at Star Wars Galaxy Edge at Disney's Hollywood Studios with proceeds benefiting Give Kids the World. And of course, um, you can go to, we always have links in the show notes, but you can go to gktw.org slash disfam 
for all this information and yep. information about tickets since they're still selling tickets. Yep. Still, still yeah. tickets available. So you still have time to get in on it. And uh, just to kind of reiterate with this, so more people understand. I mean, I know a lot of people are getting to the point where they're going to have to make a decision about traveling for the event sooner than later if you didn't have tickets for the first time around and transferred over into the next event. But uh, it, it, it's again, this is this is an event thrown together by not thrown together. That's an insult in a way, but it's being put together by Give Kids the World and and you know, all, all of it benefits give kids the world and our names on it. But this is a convention that they've planned. Any of our, any of our meets that we've done before with the Diz that you might have attended the dreams 20th party, the Diz 20th party, any, any of our holiday events that we used to throw around Pete's birthday and such. Uh, you know, those were, those were basically we have a space where you could meet us. We do a podcast. Uh, there'd be an auction and then, and then, you, you know, the party with it. But that was, that was just a, a small thing. And then every now and then we'd have someone like Jody Benson also perform too as, as a, a special treat with it. But this is, this is the complete opposite. This is a convention with all of those guests. This is like a, a mini, different version of a d23 expo or a destination mm -hmm. d it's that's the entertainment and then of course there'll be members of the team around throughout the weekend as well as other people you might know from disboards i'm talking if you use disboards you know different posters on there different people you see on on youtube chat and such it's uh, it's more like that so it's completely different from anything that we've been a part of and and it's very it's very new for us to even try to promote it in that way because we haven't ever had to promote a convention like this before we've we we show up to d23 expo we're not we're not sitting there uh talking to them we're talking to disney about what they're going to do and why they should let us in all the panels where they're going to make all the cool announcements but uh it's it's going to be completely different and it's it's going to i think it's going to be a a really a really fun time and now I know a lot of people have the hopes too to be be around Walt Disney World on on October first for everything that's exciting with Magic Kingdom and Epcot, but uh, that the celebration's going to be running for a year. The castle, I feel like it's a week away from actually being finished and fully decorated. Uh, if if that's part of what you wanted to see with it, so uh, there's. There's plenty of time to take in what's happening for the 50th anniversary. If you didn't get in early on that, maybe consider coming a couple weeks early, earlier and, and check out what's happening with the convention of the presenters mm -hmm. and all of that uh, intrigued you. Yeah. Yeah. It will be fun. Looking forward to it. So, and I haven't mentioned um, story time with Michael for a while because I, I, the ball's in my court with one of the stories. Well, I've been so um, involved in a million different things, but uh, I, I have to finish working on this princess before I, um, I begin working on another princess and recording that story since we have the artwork for her yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and all that, but I will get to it. And then hopefully the other folks that, that said their work on the stories, they'll say, okay, he finally did one. Now, now we'll, now we know it's real and we'll work on our stuff too. 
<laughs> so anyway, exactly. We're gonna get there. We will. We will get there. Um, I used a few books when putting this episode together. Uh, the fairest one of all, The Making of Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by J.B. Kaufman. Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, An Art in Its Making by Martin Krauss and Linda Witkowski. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, The Art and Creation of Walt Disney's Classic Animated Film by J.B. Kaufman. And The Disney Princess, A Celebration of Art and Creativity by Charles Solomon. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the random different shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network that I'm on. And then, of course, you can always find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. And then also uh, you can email me anytime at Craig at WDWinfo.com. Hopefully my inbox isn't uh isn't completely filled up so that way it can actually get through to me a uh, problem that i have way too often that hopefully won't won't be impacted but yeah those are all the ways to get in touch with me and then i just want to mention too uh please if you can make sure you uh get on if you're listening to this through apple podcasts make sure you get on and leave us leave us um definitely leave us a review i know michael always says leave us positive ratings and reviews but it really does help us a lot uh extend the reach of the show when it's getting new ratings and reviews so if that's how you listen please 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 do so and uh thank you to a lot of the people who left reviews recently gt mar 1027 disney disney kim 71 uh zenzan uh, parker 4 fm you all left really awesome great reviews for us so thank you thank you so much but hey michael where do people find you you can find me at uh, Mike. Well, you can send me messages at Michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm in at bowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. And you know what? I forgot to bring up the QA show. Be oh, sure yeah. you post your questions on Do you want to tell folks quickly where they can post their questions? Yeah, completely forgot about that. So uh, head over to Facebook. Facebook oh, butchered that one right at the end. Uh, Facebook.com slash Diz Unplugged. And we have a pinned post right at the top that is uh, that is our place to ask questions and we uh we have uh the questions will be open for another full week so you have plenty of time to still ask them we'll have the the question and answer episodes the first week of may if i can remember correctly and questions can be about walt disney theme parks imagineering books movies tv uh the walt disney company you know all Ask us, ask us anything. We'll try to do it. Uh, try to answer it. Just don't ask us simple yes or no questions and don't ask us what we think Walt would think about any current Disney subject. But uh, mm-hmm. beyond that, ask away. And yeah, if you don't have Facebook and you want to ask a question, find a friend who has Facebook. Chances are they're <laughs> out there and tell them, Hey, go to Dis Unplugged, hit that like. You don't have to do that, but uh, then maybe they'll become a fan too. But then you you tell them what question to ask. Mm-hmm. 
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disneyplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. And thank you to all of those who have done that. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>